Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we've had a lot of fun this month with all the poo and the radiocarbon dating. But this week, we need to talk about something more serious. By now, listeners have spent a couple of days of their lives, cumulatively, listening to us talk about the things that people leave behind. But we've not spent so much time talking about what's left behind of the people themselves. So... This week, we're sitting down to talk about some key concepts around excavating, curating, selling, yes, selling, and displaying human remains. The last time we talked about this, along with some of the specific artistic, spiritual, and utilitarian aspects of human remains, was in our aptly titled Things Made of People episode. Just as in that episode, we want to give folks a heads up that we will be talking about human remains. And if you hang around with us for this episode, you'll probably learn some new reasons why somebody might not want to talk about this topic. Now, I'm no legal scholar, but I feel pretty confident in saying that there are lots of things you are not allowed to do to people when they're alive. Mm -hmm. And there are even more things you aren't allowed to do to people when they aren't alive. Hmm. I feel like I can say that. (laughs) I think I I would agree with you. Okay. Uh, So let's start easy. Largely speaking, you can buy human bones. I, and coincidentally, everybody sitting around me at the cafe downtown while I was researching for the script, uh, we all now know that it is legal to buy human bones in the United States. Um, I found a human rib bone for a cool 200 on Amazon, but it wasn't prime eligible. Sorry. Uh, it, so it was advertised for search and rescue dog training. Uh, with one very explicit exception, which we will definitely get into, you can buy human bones for study or display or your creepy, ethically dubious art in shops or online in the United States, unless you live in the states of Louisiana, Georgia, Tennessee, or New York. Elsewhere, it's not really legal, but it's not necessarily illegal, or it's a combination of the two, but the laws are outdated, impossible to enforce, or unspecific. Anna, have you ever been to the bone room? No. Okay. Well, I know you've been to the website, but the actual bone room, the the titular room, is uh-huh. in Berkeley, California, and oh. um, and it is um, it's a shop in North Berkeley, so it's on this like pretty bougie street, and there's like lots oh. of little like like I think MythBusters had something to do with them. I think they've been shopping at the bone room before for something that they used in one of their experiments that would make sense since they they were local it's a shop that sells uh like prepared specimens Mm. of of humans and animals and you go in and you're like oh this is I don't know why, I don't know how I could have possibly expected this to be anything other than what it is. And so, you know how you told me that that guy and in, in that, like, you look at the photo of that guy in the the uh, Vice article that we'll talk about at the very end, and you're like, he looks exactly like you'd expect him to look? Yeah. Um, well, the other side of exactly what you'd expect someone to look <laughs> is at the bone room, and you're just Alrighty. like, okay, okay, okay. And so it's just like, <laughs> back to important things. Mm -hmm. A 2016 study in the Journal of Forensic Science titled, They Sell Skulls Online? It's an Antero being there. A review of internet internet sales of human skulls on eBay and the laws in place to restrict sales. When that came out in 2016, it blew the bone-selling world wide open, and eBay banned the sale of human remains apart from hair altogether four days after the study dropped. eBay cited illegality as the reason for the ban, but that's not quite true. Because of this murky (laughs) 
gray area that human remains apart from hair which people are usually pretty comfortable with Um, and there's no legal language that lets you cite as the reason right um and so in the uk the law that's nodded to about this is the human tissue act of 2004 and according to the hta 2004 section 32 it is an offense to engage in commercial dealings in bodily material such as organs or tissue for the purposes of transplantation um a person guilty of an offense under section 32 is liable to prison for up to a year and or a fine however the human tissue act is all about living stuff it's not about dead stuff so that's really where like there are huge ethical and legal dimensions to this but a lot of them um deal with the fact that when most laws were written nobody really thought about this like right like the, so the language isn't explicit or uh the language just doesn't like if sort of if you follow the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, it would govern it. But the like the spirit of the law is harder to prove in court. But let's set all that aside for now and focus on the archaeological world. OK, well, um, we talked about uses for human remains in archaeological contexts and the gnarly historical accounts of preparation methods for anatomical study subjects in our Things Made of People episode. But what about the remains we discussed in our regular episodes? When someone is excavated from a burial or bone material is screened out of excavated dirt, what happens to them? Well, usually in in museums, it very much depends on what community uh, that particular person belongs to. So if someone is excavated and it's from a community that no longer exists, typically the human remains are treated respectfully, but in the same way that most other archaeological material is treated it's cataloged and and stored for for study where i've worked in the past and when i worked in museums it would be and by saying like cataloged and kept for study it was in like basically in like thick ziploc bags with labels on them or boxes sometimes cardboard boxes yeah yeah once i found a um i was in was in a museum and i was like poking around in um, the materials from a specific site. And so like the entire row of this shelf was just material pulled out from this year from this site. And there was this like fruit box, like a fruit, like a <laughs> cardboard crate that you would find mm-hmm. bananas in. And it had written on it, human bones. And I opened the box and I was like, yep, that's, that's what those are. Here. Yeah. And it's just <laughs> sort of bones. And it was just very unsettling. She used to be like, oh, there's a person in this box. Um, and so it is, it is sort of unsettling. It's not like, I, I don't know what people might imagine. I don't know if they imagine it being like being in a morgue or something where you have like niches or like or a drawers crypt or something. and things. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not like that. It's just um, the human bones are, if, if you're, and this is, I was working with like prehistoric populations in an right. area where the contemporary population doesn't feel any heritage connection. Or even like, yeah. a, a, and you know, there there were has the material wasn't good enough to get like DNA samples from, or right or whatever. So there isn't like that link, and so it's just like there's bones. Yeah, um, I had I had kind of a similar experience when I took a zooarchaeology class at Harvard, um, and part of that class was the end of the year project, whereas you had to catalog like identify the 
bones, like to species, from a big chunk of archaeological material from the site of Tel Elan, which is a site from Syria. And Harvard has just buckets and buckets of remains that were excavated years and years ago, and they use their students to do the ongoing cataloging and identification of all of those bones. And it's all animal bones, but in my box of bones, I actually, I found a human mandible and, Ah. um, it was the mandible of a child Ah. It was in several pieces and I could, you know, I could tell the age from the teeth and all of that. And, and so it was really, yeah, it's very unsettling to be like, even in a context where you are expecting to find bones, right? Because it's a box of bones. Yeah. Nothing but Um, bones. No, it was, it was a weird moment. Um, but again, yeah, this wasn't, um, anyone who, a modern community would feel connected to in any way. And so um, I identified and cataloged those bones with the rest of the material. It seems that being unsettled by bones of a, <laughs> of a once living person is not necessarily a, a deep seated tradition in anthropology. No, it may see, it may seem to be a, a bit more of a modern sentiment. So um, to talk a little bit about past practices and anthropology and just a heads up, this gets really quite upsetting. The man who's known, I don't know how much I I like this, but he's known as the father of physical anthropology. Um, His name is Alex Herdlichka. And he went all over the world and did a number of very, very important studies, but he did so with more or less a complete disregard for the sensitivities of the groups that he was interacting with. For example, he spent the summer of 1910 in Peru. He reportedly collected 3,500 skulls and skeletons. Quote, One would think that to ravage the graves and carry away the bones of almost anybody's ancestors would be a somewhat dangerous business, reported a 1911 magazine from an interview with uh, Herlitschka, who then worked at the Smithsonian. But apparently his response was to shrug his shoulders. In his long career, Herlitschka amassed the remains of more than 15,000 people. Some of Herlitschka's collections even more clearly violated the dignity of indigenous people. In 1902, Herdlishka was traveling in northern Mexico when he came across a massacre site of Yaqui Indians killed by Mexican federal troops. He described finding, and heads up, this gets grim, he described finding 64 bodies, including women, children, and a baby. He chopped off the hands and heads of 12 victims. Herdlishka only lamented he could not obtain more. Quote, most of the skulls, he later wrote, whether from a peculiar effect of the Mauser cartridges or from the closeness of the range, were so shattered as to be of no use. The Yaki's remains were then sent to the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Yeah. So, um, sort of the range of options that, that we just discussed about whether it be sort of the way that Herdlitschka treated uh, human remains or the way that we have personally treated human remains in our own work um, in museum collections. Um, anything along that spectrum isn't really particularly appealing to persons who ble- whose belief systems require them to be buried underground or for someone's bones to remain in the same place um, or for their bones to remain together or that the peacefulness of their rest hinges on remaining undisturbed, both physically and in sight speech. Um, and so burial traditions vary significantly from place to place and evolve over time. That's, I think, you guys have been with us for 
for a while now. I think you're getting a sense of that. Um, every society does something different and they have their own reasons for doing it. But in the interest of time, I want to give only two examples to highlight some of the, like the key ways in which anthropology, as it has been practiced for much of the last few hundred years, um, has done a lot of violence toward people that it claims it wants to understand. First, I want to talk about um, representations of the dead in Australia, in indigenous Australia. So the there's this very old tradition not to depict dead people or say their first names, which is... Uh, which is part of traditional law. And so traditional law across Australia said that a dead person's name could not be said because you would recall and disturb their spirit. And then after the European invasion they and introduction of photography and later film, um, that law was adapted to images as well. Um, and, and so you may, if you've... Um, like if you followed any of the links from some of the stuff that we've we've done in our other episodes that deal with Aboriginal Australians, you may see notices about how there will be images and and names of the deceased, and it's like a, a content warning. Um, that's what is at the root of that. And so, um, just as like, I don't know, to like how to help you get your head around that. So here in the U.S., it's standard practice for the media to omit the names of people under the age of 18 unless the family gives permission. And that's part of um, like issues of respect and privacy. Um, and among indigenous Australians, the same courtesy is ideally in place for deceased persons. Um, less so on the south, the southeast and the coast of Australia, where the colonization has been most thorough. Um, but in the Northern Territory, it's way more likely, uh, it's much more widely understood not to, to not provide the first name or images of the deceased uh, without the consent of the family or the community first. Um, and as we're going to get into in greater detail in a few minutes, here in North America, indigenous peoples and governments have found a really long uphill battle for access to, much less possession of, their own ancestral remains. Um, some groups have beliefs around the need for interment in one's homeland, but something that, in my view, gets lost in a lot of the conversations we have around ancestral remains is this notion of sovereignty and autonomy, where if you think about whose bones... <laughs> are being put in museums and there are yeah, you would think that that would set the bar for who gets to say something about it yeah right exactly and so this idea of you can't so if you i read in preparing for this this episode and you'll find in the the resources that we list in our show notes tons and tons of examples of if there's a like a previously unknown graveyard found there was one where it was it, i think it was in the midwest and the majority of the the people who were buried there were um, identified as anglo americans so these were like white people but there also was one woman like one indigenous woman and her child all of the white people were buried like reburied in the cemetery but the indigenous woman and her child's remains were taken to a museum. And so this this idea of yikes of you've you've cut out the the indigenous community completely from the equation. It's like so much of the the things that you have and even around like urban legends around like oh there was an Indian burial ground and like disturbed remains and this idea in like the public consciousness. I don't I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth because I'm sure that there are communities for whom like it is that and we'll talk about some of some other examples of like religious views around the buried. Um, but 
like the sovereignty dimension here is huge. And I think it also can be applied to indigenous Australian folks where like, what right do you have to talk about the deceased when they can't speak for themselves kind of thing? Like, which like I know is it's not the same thing as this idea of like disturbing someone's spirit or their memory, but just in a, in a very like, if you just look at this like materialist perspective of, of like less the spiritual realm, it's just this idea of like, there's a there's an issue of who owns that narrative. And so Neil Curtis, who is a um, a scholar that works in museum studies, um, wrote in 2003 in an article entitled Human Remains, the Sacred Museums and Archaeology. He says, archaeologists work with material evidence to identify patterns. We do not discover what was inside people's heads. Meanings were never fixed in the thing itself, but we were read from the experiences and expectations gained from elsewhere. And that's from Barrett, 1994. Without access to those experiences and expectations, we cannot claim to have knowledge of their beliefs and thus respect their wishes. So, I was doing like fist pumps for that last little bit of that sentence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, like, we can't like, respect the wishes of of the the very long dead, but out of respect for those that believe that that these standards of, of sovereignty and self-determination should apply to everyone, not just their own communities and ancestors. And out of respect for the, the individuals who died hundreds of thousands of years before anybody could obtain their consent to be displayed, some archaeologists are adopting the position of omitting images of deceased persons from books uh, altogether and removing human bodies from display cases in museums. Um, one, this came up on Twitter when Professor Bob Muckle at Capilano University in British Columbia, um, he, he tweeted about this and opened a really great discussion thread when he said, quote, I'm working on a third edition of an intro to archaeology book. I'm removing all the photos of human biological remains being mummies, full skeletons and skulls. End quote. Um, instead, Muckle and others are choosing to use artist reconstructions, archaeological illustrations, which keep people like Anna employed. Yay. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and using those in books and then models and casts in museums. Um, even here at the Dirt, you'll, you may have noticed that we tend to avoid images of, of biological human remains. And I do my best to include content warnings for resources that do include images or discussion of human remains, um, especially when if they have been modified or mistreated in some way. Archaeologists shouldn't get too ruffled about this, but they, they still do. Well, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh. they but this shouldn't be new for them. Like this this new these new steps toward omitting like images of biological remains because this is just a, another step along the path that started in 1990 because since 1990 there's been a set of guidelines strictly governing what can and must never be done with human remains of indigenous americans and native hawaiians um, and indigenous americans also includes alaskan native corporations in the state of alaska um, yep. so remember that very explicit exception in the legality of selling human remains i do Yeah. Um, I'm talking about the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, um, which directly addressed the fact that as long as there's been physical anthropology, there has been theft and disturbance of deceased indigenous people in the United States. At its heart, NAGPRA makes it a criminal offense to traffic in Native American human remains without right of possession or or traffic in Native American cultural items obtained in violation of the act. Penalties for a first offense may reach 12 months imprisonment and a $100,000 fine. Um, Yeah. Um, And so NAGPRA is contentious and complex. 
still it's you know it's almost 30 um and as you can like and it's you know it's complexity you can probably appreciate given that it's a single u.s legal code that tries to address in a single stroke um claims of possession made by any of the 573 federally recognized tribes uh, here in the United States on archaeological material from more than 10,000 years, and it does so through a narrow legal lens defined by U.S. legal conceptions. How could that go wrong? Right. And so um, context, um, I really recommend this book if you are interested in this, and we'll talk about NAGPRA more in the future. Um, But context for this can be found via Kathleen Sue Fine Dare's book um, from a little over 10 years out from um, NAGPRA's passage. And the book is called Grave Injustice, the American Indian Repatriation Movement and NAGPRA. Um, and if she, nothing else, that's a great title. Yeah. And she does this really amazing job of sort of it, – it, it's written for – introductory and, and general audiences in in the discipline and so it's this idea of like oh, good. this like here get up to speed on um how nagpra fits in with the the campaign for like civil rights and like self-determination among indigenous groups so cannot recommend that book enough give us a little bit of a background on it anna okay so this is from uh an article in atlas obscura native americans had long tried to prevent the theft of their dead but it was not until the 1960s, in the wake of the civil rights movement, that activists turned collections into a question of conscience. Why were U.S. museums filled almost exclusively with the bones of Native Americans? Quote, When a white man's grave is dug up, it's called grave robbing, as the Tohono O'odham uh, activist Robert Cruz said in 1986, and continuing the quote, But when an Indian's grave is dug up, it's called archaeology. End quote. Native Americans chained themselves to exhibit cases, attempted citizens' arrests of professors studying bones, and protested at archaeological sites. And then, so finally, after more than 100 years of protest, Congress passed NAGPRA, which lives within the purview of the U.S. Department of the Interior and also with the National Park Service. Yeah, so the NPS lives in the Department of the Interior. Right, but it, yeah, it's that's the so specific... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I'll include the full text of NAGPRA in our show notes, if you want to read it, um, as well as some resources on breaking it down into more digestible terms. But for now, I'll share some of the information that the National Park Service puts forward. Um, say, And they say, um, the Native American Graves Re- Protection and Repatriation Act was enacted on November 16, 1990, to address the rights of lineal descendants, Indian tribes, and Native Hawaiian organizations to Native American cultural items, including human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. Uh, The act assigned implementation responsibilities to the Secretary of the Interior. Staff support is provided by the National NAGPRA Program, and that support includes um, publishing notices for museums and federal agencies in the register, creating and maintaining databases, including the Culturally Unidentifiable Human Remains Inventories database, making grants to assist museums, tribes, and organizations in fulfilling NAGPRA, assessing civil penalties on museums that fail to comply with the provisions of the act, 
uh, providing staff support to the NAGPRA Review Committee and the annual report to Congress, and providing technical assistance to federal agencies where there are excavations and discoveries of cultural items on federal and Indian lands, promulgating implementing regulations, and providing technical assistance through training, website information, reports prepared for the Review Committee, supporting law enforcement investigations, and direct personal service. In 1990, when it was passed, NAGPRA was and remains a huge deal and has sweeping implications for museums, institutions, and Native communities. So here are a couple of examples of how museums work to stay in compliance with NAGPRA and do right by Indigenous communities. The Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History's Repatriation Office says, And remember, this is where Hrdlicka was working when he was like, meh, about stealing people's bones. Yeah, but you know, about a hundred years later. Right. No, that's what I'm saying. Like a hundred years later, this is what's happening. Like yes. Yes. So I'm talking about progress. Yeah. No, it's great. So quote, between 1997 and 1998, the National Museum of Natural History distributed two separate reports to federally recognized Native American communities. The first report distributed in 1997 was a summary of all Native American ethnological objects in the collections at the Smithsonian Institution. The second report, distributed in 1998, was an inventory of all Native American human remains and archaeological objects held by the National Museum of Natural History. Both reports were sent to all federally recognized Native American tribes, Alaskan Native corporations, and Native Hawaiian organizations. Um, And the Phoebe A. Hearst Museum at UC Berkeley states on its website that, quote, To date, the museum has consulted with more than 450 distinct Native groups. NAGPRA claims can be made by lineal descendants, tribal chairpersons, or authorized NAGPRA representatives of federally recognized tribes. Generally, NAGPRA claims take the form of letters and are accompanied by evidence related to right of possession, NAGPRA object category, and, where applicable, evidence supporting a classification of cultural affiliation. The Hearst Museum also shares its policies regarding traditional care. Quote, descendant communities may have their own traditional perspectives on the care, storage, and handling of cultural objects. The museum welcomes requests to incorporate these approaches into its collections care so long as they are mindful of museum curation and university safety policies. In cases where traditional care requests cannot be strictly accommodated, the museum collaboratively explores alternative arrangements with communities in order to implement culturally sensitive care while upholding the safety and security of all collections. The museum also invites guidance from tribes who, for whatever reason, are unable to receive human remains to whom they have been culturally affiliated. They are encouraged to contact the museum regarding protocols for treatment of the remains until repatriation or an alternate disposition can be arranged. However, just because they're not on display doesn't mean they've been returned to their descendants or been given a final resting place. Some still languish in museum collections unclaimed. Yeah. And um, if I, speaking of the Phoebe Anna Hearst Museum, um, if I remember correctly, when I was a student and I couldn't find any news coverage of this, um, but when I was a student there, I believe that there was a small protest outside the museum because they have a um, collection of of Ainu materials. um, Indigenous Japanese. Yeah. Indigenous Japanese and up on like the Kamchatka peninsula um, Mm -hmm. of what's now Russia. Um, And there were people that were protesting for the repatriation of, of those materials. And I don't know if there were, if there was like human remains or if this was just like cultural materials. So it's sort of a, 
like a contrast. Nag- Nagpros had ripples. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know because you know there's a perhaps the like indigenous rights campaign has had ripples. Yeah. So like because so Nagpra is has been passed and is and has been put into law and organizations are responsible for complying with it. But other indigenous communities around the world and nations uh, that have some sense of like cultural patrimony around things, they uh, don't have policies like that in place. So we'll talk about that one day. But it's just some some contrast there. Um, so NAGPRA. So not only for the stuff, like the stuff that we already have out of the ground, but for stuff that is still in the ground. NAGPRA establishes procedures for the inadvertent discovery or planned excavation, the advertent discovery, of Native American cultural items or on federal or tribal lands. Um, the, the provisions don't apply to discoveries made on private or state lands, but the collection provisions of the act may apply to Native American cultural items if they come under the control of an institution that receives federal funding. So what that means is, unfortunately, there's kind of a finder's keepers law in place, like a, a policy in place where if it's your private land or if it's state land, so if it's in a state park, there's no obligation. But if you're going to try to sell it, problem. Um, if you're going to try to donate it to an institution, that's a problem. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. sort of, you can't do any, you can't profit off of it is the idea. And so also if it, if it comes in, in contact with anything federal. So thinking about if there's a construction project, like building a new highway or installing new power lines or building a new apartment complex, if any of those expect to use federal funding, federal lands or a federal permit, so like if they're going to get tax credits or if they're just if it's like the high Department of Highways. So if it's getting something from like the transportation, the Department of Transportation for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, or it requires a federal permit. And my friend, friend of the show, Hannah, who it works Hi, Hannah. in, <laughs> who is a historic preservation consultant. The example she gave me is um, airports. They don't get federal money, but. All federal airports have to go through this. All all airports have to go through this because the FAA decides who's an airport because they have to get a permit. So if you're if you fall in any of these camps, um, you have to have what's called a Section 106 review done. And Section 106 is part of the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, which was modified post NAGPRA to include um, properties of traditional religious and cultural importance to an Indian tribe or native Hawaiian organization. So not only is it just like old churches or like old, like old buildings or battlefields or things, it can also be something that is of significance to an indigenous community, um, which is arguably good. Uh, Section 106 review can and usually does involve many, many people. But after NAGPRA, one of the considerations that's made is whether there exists any archaeological material or culturally significant factors that might result in what they call adverse effects if the project were to continue as originally planned. So um, you do the you do these different things where you do surveys to make sure that you aren't going to like decimate the beaver population. You can make sure that it's not going to, um, which is something that happened here. Uh, and oh. yeah, well, the beavers are fine, but we don't have a road there. So that's. Oh, OK. Yeah. Um, and so also <laughs> if there are sites of importance to uh, communities and those communities now include indigenous communities, ideally, the party is responsible for the project and the party's section 106 aims to represent come to some kind of agreement and they kind of mitigate the problems. But unfortunately, it doesn't always work. 
And a really um, heartbreaking example of this is in the construction of the, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, yeah. And this is a piece for the conversation written by our friend Chip Colwell. Yay, Chip. Yep. Yay, Chip. Over at, over at sapiens.org, a yeah. great website for anthropology. Yeah. And a great podcast. Yes, also that. Yeah. Um, And so I'm just going to read a short quote from this piece that he wrote. Um, As an anthropologist who has worked with Native Americans for more than a decade to document their sacred places in the paths of new power plants, power lines, water pipelines, and more, the battle in North Dakota is all too familiar. I have seen how the legal process behind environmental and archaeological reviews for energy projects, such as DAPL, work and often don't work. The tragedy in North Dakota for cultural heritage and the violence against protesters that has resulted comes in part from a failure of the U.S. legal system. Consultation with tribes too often breaks down because federal agencies are unwilling to consider how Native Americans view their own heritage. And that's something my my father worked for the Department of Energy for a bit, and he had a few projects where they did Section 106 review and they did like the EPA review and things. And in working with indigenous communities there, he commented about how um, they're just two people speaking two different languages here, but only one of those languages is the language of power. And so NAGPRA is a huge topic and we'll talk about it more and its implications in future episodes um, and the ways in which it um, helps, but also doesn't quite help enough. It's sort of, it's got good intentions um, in future, but let's move on to other people and other places. Yeah, Sure. Um, well, I mean, do you have any of... experience with like non homo sapiens people? Are they treated like people? I don't. Uh, the thing is they're often so isolated, like, like the specimens are so much one of a kind that they're treated as almost more than people. Like they're treated as like celebrated artifacts. And, and there's, especially if you get far back enough into time, there's no sense of culture, no sense of continuing population and so it becomes even more difficult to determine what would have been respectful right and so yeah i really i'm at a loss to have any, yeah, you know so, i don't i don't know what to say about that apart from like they're viewed as specimens okay honestly like and it's so, just like, like do you, this you, is a specimen so you don't end up with like a ziploc bag of of like chalky neanderthal bones probably not no yeah because there's no but it's just Huh. Yeah, it's you know, if you find a fossil hominin, it's a big deal. Yeah. Even if you find, you know, Neanderthals are are becoming more and more common these days, more and more old hat, but they're still it's if you find Neanderthal <laughs> remains, it's Coming a big here, deal. Stealing stealing the the Denisovans jobs. Right. Yep. <laughs> moving in moving into that penthouse Denisovan cave oh, apartment. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that description. That was the Denisovan cave site was referred to as a penthouse. At the heart of it, archaeology is about understanding like the the patterns and the habits and the actions of humans, and yeah. and so sort of humans get kind of lost, can't see the forest for the trees, I can't see the hmm. can't see the people for the pots. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so I mean, if you have perspective on that, if you have anecdotes, um, we really would love to hear them, and you can write in at thedirtpodcast at gmail dot com. That would be awesome. Yeah. But moving on to another place, um, in the state of Israel, 
ultra-Orthodox Jewish organizations protest the work of archaeologists in museums and on excavations where the remains of people that might have been Jews are discovered. It's a contentious issue that highlights some of the interplay of Israeli law with Jewish law. The conflict in Israel between the public interest in archaeological research and the religious convictions that human remains once buried should not be touched um, is, is something that really, there's a lot of push and pull in terms of scholarship versus tradition. Yeah. And so I have colleagues that work in Israel and have excavated in Israel and some who run projects there. And there, I, I mean, I don't want to put anybody's like laundry out in the street, but uh, there are stories, some of which are like well documented of people like excavating at night or like excavating when oh, the weather's boy. terrible. And uh, like if they encounter or people who are excavating um, on if they have to like report to somebody, they report um, before, you know, 20 minutes before sundown on Friday and then they like come back to site and like work all day. Like oh, on, that is just on, on dirty Shabbat. play. Yeah, so th so there are like there are shady things on that side, but also there are there are small organizations of pe of people that um, are ultra orthodox who interpret Jewish law to be like like no touching, no touching the bones because they they need to be like intact and all together, um, and they will come and there there has been instances of destruction of property, of destruction of the site, which is sort of counterintuitive um but also there are sites that if they like adequately convey like oh no no this is this is too late like this is like a christian site like christians are buried here or like muslims were buried here or um there's one example um in an article that i'm sure where it's a a philistine site and so it's sort of oh like, interesting like prime early jew like burial like sort of the the um Material the time culture, range, you mean? yeah, oh, like okay. the, both the, the time frame and the material culture is is similar enough, and also like the, uh, I don't think that a lot of the people who are protesting are like experts of the archaeology of the area. Like they just, mm -hmm. it's it's a it's like very it's a, much the like principle a, of the thing. Yeah, it's a it's a very like principle based and like morality based objection. And so if okay. you if you but when like research will say like well no if you look at this and this and this and we have this and we got our radiocarbon dating this and like it falls outside of like we're we're so very confident that this these populate like this is not a Jewish population, they are like okay cool <laughs> and they leave. Um, okay bye. And I know someone who works in the Upper Paleolithic. And she's like, I've never right. had a problem. Nobody's ever yes. bothered me. Um, nope. And they so weren't Jewish yet. Yeah. And so it's just this, like, people, some people I've talked to kind of treat it as, like, an occupational hazard, basically, of, like, oh, you know, like, we just, like, don't talk about burials. Like, we don't. And sort of, like, you work in secret. And it's just because there's this very activated population, like, a, a small population of people that have um, a religiously informed mindset that is they just really hate the work that they're doing um right within specific parameters <laughs> yeah for policies governing the treatment of human remains and cultural heritage beyond just the united states well that's where the 1970 unesco convention and the 1954 hague convention for the protection of cultural property in the event of armed conflict comes into play but we'll save those for the future yeah we have a um a sponsored episode coming up about yes. that very topic. 
Thank you, Holly. So, yes, thank you. Uh, well, great. This is going to be a great segue. Thank you, Holly. Now, things take a turn for the truly macabre. No, really. This part isn't great. Sorry, Holly. <laughs> so, again, let's start with contemporary bones and work our way back. So, there exists an insidious market for trafficking of human remains. Um, the dead remains, not the Human Tissue Act governed remains um and yeah remember when we talked about the the persian princess and yeah how that was a, a, a recent person yeah sort of like yeah. a fake mummy but a real human yeah yeah um so when we talk about anatomical skeletons and so you know materials for one could argue like a noble purpose so like for study this market originates in places including but not exclusively india um, and so in a very good, albeit decade old article in Wired, they, the author writes, quote, India has long been the world's primary source of bones used in medical study, renowned for producing specimens scrubbed to a pristine white patina and fitted with high quality connecting hardware. In 1985, however, the Indian government outlawed the export of human remains and the global supply of skeletons collapsed. Western countries turned to China and Eastern Europe, but those regions produce relatively few skeletons. They have little experience producing display quality specimens and their products are regarded as inferior. Um, and so this article has a very um, robust photographic element, um, which is quite upsetting to see like a bone factory. Um, yeah. And so like they're clearly making a lot of uh like display quality specimens. And so that, that trade never stopped. And without transparent supply chains, which is something that um, affect every industry, um, but without transparency in the supply chain, how sure can an institution really be that its skeletons are ethically sourced? Well, there is one, I found one donation-based <laughs> um purveyor of skeletal material skullsunlimited.com which huh. which it seems like it's quite limited um but <laughs> well <laughs> they got they got that domain name they got yeah. that domain name like in preparation well, for the day when and now i really need to like clear my cookies because like i am getting just wall-to-wall ads for human bones at this point oh uh, that's why you sent me you texted me saying well this is all my ads now and, yeah. I, <laughs> and it's just like a pile of bones it's on amazon <laughs> um but speaking of donation based you can get us a tong child replica for 145 us from them yeah uh definitely need that as a paperweight <laughs> yeah ah yes that's it's it's true purpose um the sale of human bones is just one small part of a billions of dollars a year enterprise known as the red market whoa <laughs> right that's dark <laughs> i know right so um archaeological materials crop up in this um sometimes accidentally because you you know you're just selling a you're just selling skulls and you don't know where that skull's coming from. Sometimes it's coming from a few hundred years ago. The archaeological materials that that do show up aren't just skulls and other skeletal remains. Because you got to think about the spookier, sexier things that so-called collectors love getting their paws on. Do we um, have to? Unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> Um, and so these are the th these include um, archaeological and ethnographic human remains like mummies, like mu like all flavors of mummies, to trophy skulls, relics from saints, 
um, that's there was a, a hand of a saint, I think, that was, uh, or a finger of a saint that was um, that TSA caught, I think, recently. Oh dang! <laughs> yeah, so it's just like human remains, um, shrunken heads, um, the the sorts of of the curiosities. Tibetan skull cap damaru drums and kangling flutes made from the human femora and tibiae. Um, and then all kinds of stuff marketed as curios, as well as primarily mm. cranial specimens uh, that, uh, you know, th- uh, that are allegedly bought and sold for medical research only. Like, OK. Um, right. But also it's like how people sell super haunted stuff on eBay. Right. And they're like, it's haunted. It's not actually haunted. It's for entertainment purposes only. But it's mad haunted. Like, it's, it's that for sort sure of thing. haunted, you guys. Yeah. And so. Okay. Um, and so Fine. this is, uh, and this is, I pulled that list in part from a, a post on um, saving antiquities for everyone, SAFE, which is yep. a really amazing organization. But with all of this stuff going on, there is a hero. Mm-hmm. Enter Damien Huffer. Bow, bow, bow. So his work alongside criminologists, forensic chemists, who knew, and Speaking of who knew, digital archaeologists. Yes. Hey. Um, he's sought to ferret out commodified human remains, understand the people who are that are selling and buying them, and, in my view, most interestingly of all, why they're doing it. We are way past eBay these days, um, yes. and this is evidence no nowhere better than in Huffer and colleagues' 2017 article, "The Insta Dead: The Rhetoric <laughs> of the Human Remains Trade on Instagram." Hashtag so, dead. So if you thought that like weight loss teas on Instagram were insidious, yeah, nay, like straight up selling human humans. Strap in. Yep. And so in a conversation with the dirt patron saint, Christina Kilgrove for Forbes, Huffer says, (laughs) when I started this research, little had been published on the online marketplace on human remains. It seemed there just weren't enough people monitoring or reporting listings of human remains on eBay and other places. To me, the commercial sale, private collection, and fetishization of the ancient and exotic dead are violations of the human rights of the dead and their descendants. Most of the people I've shared this research with are also shocked that anyone would actively seek out and collect human remains. And fortunately, international bodies such as the UN are increasingly seeing issues of looting and heritage destruction during conflict as a human rights issue as well. Good. Damien, my dude, like this stuff is so interesting. It is. Um, and, Why? Yes, yes. And so on um, in the links that I'm including, you can see mm-hmm. um, and some of the information is 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 not super current. It's within a few years, though. And you see these places where um, like geographically, like where skulls are popping up for sale and you can track these things. And it's and it's and art crime is is something that has been people care a lot about art crime. And have for a long time. And, uh, you know, you have like the monuments men and like, mm-hmm. uh, and like, yeah. and like what was happening in World War II and things like that. But now there is starting to be attention paid to, and attention paid to the trafficking of human remains or, and like cultural materials that are made out of humans um, that are being yeah. um, bought by folks weirdos on the internet i'm gonna say it weirdos on the internet (laughs) yeah it's a really interesting phenomenon and um it's really good that 
you know, in, in terms of what seems to be a human condition for wanting to acquire or know more or somehow have possession over remains of the dead, it's good that there are starting to be protections for those who, for cultural reasons, wish that their dead remain undisturbed. Uh, but more more can be done. Yeah, and there's also just the idea of where, where are these bones being sourced? Yeah. And so, like, and, and just thinking about the fact that, like, and what right do you have to do anything either way with another person's bones? Right, and we're back right to where we started. Yeah. Full circle. Yes, that's what we do. Don't, don't bother people's bones. No, don't do it. Well, that was one of our more serious episodes, but we think it's an important topic and we wanted to share some of it with all of you. So thank you very much for listening. As always, thank you for yeah, listening and, to The Dirt. And I, think that, and I think that this is going to be the first of many episodes that talk about um, either specific instances where like the ethics that, that underpin archaeology and anthropology are like called into question. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe have, you know, teachable moments yeah. from, from I mean, our discipline's history. Yeah, this is all really important stuff. It can't, it can't all be poop jokes and stories about dogs, but uh, we'll try to keep it balanced. <laughs> you, are, <laughs> you are the poop joke to my sovereignty of, of, like, the human body. I know you're aiming for a compliment, but... I'm the real maybe. downer here. Like, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I almost, uh, I almost took like a deep dive into like because this the article about um, the sacred museums and archaeology uh, like started talking about these ideas around like uh, museums as being like a sacred place, no, and sort of like the sanctity of stuff. And I was like, oh, this is so good. And I was just like, oh god, nobody wants to listen to this. Just me being like, and then this, and then materiality, <laughs> and then okay. Manchester. And it's just like, oh my god. <laughs> Let's wrap this up so it doesn't take me 20 hours to edit. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening. Oh, no. Okay. That's Amber. <laughs> Thank you for Thank listening. You. We will be back soon with more episodes. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at The Dirt Pod. And on Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. If you want to see all of those at the same place at the same time, you can find all of that as well as our back catalog and show notes at thedirtpod.com. Yep. And you can find the podcast that you're already putting into your ears uh, over on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, and any other podcasting platform that you might choose except Spotify. Oh, Spotify. also something that I feel I should have mentioned up top and often. If you have any human remains, don't tell us. Don't send us photos. Don't. Yeah, but if you if you want to send us other things that aren't related to the human remains that you don't have, uh, you can do that at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Thank you. I just really, I just got this like, I, I just felt like somebody walked over my grave, but it was just like a, <laughs> barrage, get an email. Of people, a barrage of people being like, I found this. I'm like, oh, no. Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot help you, sir or madam. But yeah. Thanks Thanks. for listening. We love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.